Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have Tyler Rouse. He's part of the Legends of Surgery podcast. And I'm going to interview him on my podcast. And uh, it sounds very intriguing. So, Tyler, thanks for coming. Yeah, thank you for having me. Tell me about your background. Why, why would you do a podcast about surgery? Well, it's a good question. So I am a uh, physician in Canada. I specialize in anatomical pathology, but I've always had an interest in the history of surgery in medicine in general. Actually, I was, you know, thinking about this podcast and the interview and th- looking back as to how I got interested in it. I certainly remember as an undergraduate, uh, there were these big paintings with historical moments in, in medicine, and I, I love them. I th- wanted to read more about them, find out more about them got into some podcasts and there's been a few great ones about the history of medicine, but none that really specialize in the area of surgery, which I sort of have a personal interest in. So I decided to give it a shot. And how long have you been doing the podcast and how many uh, podcasts have you done? I think it's, it's been three years, I believe. And I'm in the mid nineties in terms of episodes. So it's, uh, it's been a learning experience that sort of evolved as, as I've gone along. I don't know. What are like some of the memorable uh, podcast that you've done, what jumps out into your mind? I think the, what I found the most interesting or sort of didn't expect was the fascinating part of the history isn't necessarily just the, you know, the operations or the discoveries, but the people behind them and how they got there. And there's been some really even controversial ones that I've been interested in. Uh, for example, I don't know if you followed the story last year in New York City, there's a statue of uh, J. Marion Sims, who is considered the father of modern gynecology. It's in Central Park. And for a long time, he was sort of revered as a hero, etc. But people kind of became aware of the fact that he actually did a lot of experiments on slaves and, you know, without any pain control and some kind of very horrible things. And people became aware of this and actually the statue wound up being taken down. So I think it's, it's interesting to not just turn these ancient, so these old names into heroes without kind of questioning who they are in their background and understand they are regular people with flaws. And sometimes it's uh, circumstances of the time that they lived in too. Coming from your background, when you approach, uh, you know, surgeons to interview them, I mean, I would think they're incredibly busy people. How do you even get them onto the podcast? I actually, I don't do many interviews at all. I've, I've had a couple, um, but I predominantly, it's, it's just my own research that I, okay. heard. yeah. So, yeah, you're right, though, that there's been some interest in a few different surgeons that I've spoken to, but most of the material I cover, too, are people that are no longer around. It'd be interesting if you could, uh, you know, be allowed to be in a surgery, not as a surgeon, but as an observer, and to kind of make notes on what you see from the observer's point of view and, you know, with their permission, of course, and uh, maybe do one like that, you know, live commentary on, on what you see. Yeah, the, I actually do assist in the operating room quite a bit here. By doing that, I have the unique advantage of seeing different specialties operate. I think a lot of people don't really see anything outside of, you know, where they work. 
uh, in their specific field and they kind of get trapped in that silo and don't really see what's going on in other specialties. So that's been quite interesting too. Well, tell me about that a bit. What are you, what do you observe in an operating room that, you know, all I know about surgery is I've gone in there, I'm talking to someone. The next thing I know, I'm like, oh, and I'm waking up. So obviously <laughs> yeah. I'm not cognizant of it, thank God, but, but what it, do you observe? It, that's interesting. Well, that, yeah. So the, I mean, you're right. It's a time doesn't pass for you as the patient and the way it does, obviously, for the people involved. And what I've really been thinking a lot about is just the history that's behind every single part of the operating room, from you're washing your hands to putting prep on a patient, like for antisepsis, for, down to the instruments that we use that are named after different people. It's just the entire operating room is just imbued with this history that not everybody's aware of. Yeah, why do they call it theater over in Europe? Did you ever look into that? I have. That's actually another sort of interesting thing is that if you look at some of the original anatomical dissection rooms from Europe, like Padua in Italy is one of the most famous ones that's still actually standing. It's hundreds of years old, but it looks like an amphitheater because students would watch dissections. And that's how you'd learn. You wouldn't necessarily get to do them. The dissector would be standing at the, at the floor and would point out anatomical structures and all the students would sit around and watch almost like a performance. And then when surgery became a little bit less terrifying, when we had pain control and things like that, it didn't have to be super quick. You know, people would go in and watch as well. It became, in fact, they used to sell tickets to operations for even the public to watch. I don't know. I guess an operation is considered a private thing, but um, would that even be possible today? Or is that even, you know... Yeah, as a medical student, I'm sure you have cadaver lab, et cetera, but at least yeah. for medical students, is there any thought of doing that today or is that considered absurd or bad? That is a debatable question because that has actually been happening, obviously, with the technology that we have. You can virtually be there, right, in terms of filming it. And in, so, in some conferences, they'll have a specialist performing a, a specific type of surgery that they'll do, and it'll be like a live stream that you watch. Obviously, you don't know anything about the patient's details and their name and their et cetera. Um, so it's meant to maintain their confidentiality. But you, it has almost come around uh, in a way that it, you know, people watch. This is obviously not for entertainment purposes, but learning. But it, it's the same idea. Well, I wonder if um, there would be a credit offered to someone getting a surgery if they, you know, just say you can donate your organs. What if you elect to have your surgery live streamed? And so you'd get an offset of the cost to do the surgery because you're helping to educate others. Maybe. I, are you, you're in the States, right? Yeah, I'm in Austin, Texas. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah. So being in Canada, that's not as, uh, not as big of a perk in that we don't pay for our surgeries directly like that. Mm -hmm. But it, it's that's an interesting true. idea. So what else do you notice about, um, you know, doing surgeries yourself or assisting at least? Is it... Uh, I mean, on the surgeon and all the other people involved, like what's the atmosphere or the climate in there? Are they extremely serious? You know, do they have music on? Like what's a typical surgery look like? I've been in a number of different ones. I find the academic centers that are much larger and where people don't necessarily work with each other every single day and there's lots of people coming and going, they're a bit more serious. But in a community center where I am and you work with the same people sort of day in and day out and you become friends and you socialize, it's actually positive and, and fun atmosphere. You know, people do talk about medicine about this kind of gallows humor or black humor, because you're dealing with life and death all the time. And I think it's a way of, of sort of dealing with the seriousness of what, you know, what you're doing. 
Uh, but yeah, there's music playing, there's jokes being told, you know, or I mean, everybody's focused on the patient, of course, and making sure they get the best care possible. But it is a much more pleasant environment to work in uh, when it's when it's like that. How about the outcomes? Has anyone done a study where you have like the community environment like you're talking about versus a larger academic center and people don't know each other as much? Like, do the outcomes differ? Well, I think I, mean, I haven't seen that specifically other than looking at outcomes in terms of volumes of types of surgeries that people do uh, compared to someone in, who's a more generalist in the community who may not do as many of these specific operation uh, and suggesting that in, in some cases, those kind of operations are best done in high volume centers. But I think I'd be curious to know if that actually would, for, for more common surgeries, if that would change the outcome. Um, I'd certainly, I think it improves... Uh, the morale of the people that work there. And I'm sure, you know, a lot of people have heard about burnout and things like that in medicine and how that's becoming a significant problem during a pandemic, particularly like you imagine the mental well-being of physicians and nurses and other allied health professionals is a significant topic. And I think part of having those bonds in, in your workplace really helps. Yeah. My theory of why I'm asking you is like, you know, I noticed when someone's cooking you food and they're in a bad mood, the food's not very good. <laughs> it somehow comes comes into the food. And so yeah. I have the feeling that with surgery, if the surgeon is not having a good day or they're tired or they're, they don't like who they're working with or even the people that assist the surgeon, let's say the surgeon's real mean to the, all the other staff and the staff hates working with this person, but they do, I have the feeling that your surgery may not go as well as when you have a great environment, people are happy and they're, they're focused and relaxed. And, you know, I just have that feeling that if that study was done, there would be better outcomes. Yeah, I mean, it's certainly something that anecdotally you hear, at least the, the nursing staff are circulating, you know, people that are in the room that aren't necessarily scrubbed in. A lot of them will tell me that it depends on who the assistant is, but how well the day goes in terms of, you know, the surgeon being happy or being sort of short with them, et cetera. So you'd hope that it wouldn't have an outcome, but I mean, surgeons are, are human. And that's certainly one thing I've seen in the podcast as well, right? I mean, they're been lots of famous surgeons who have done some bad things in their personal lives as well. I mean, these are flawed people, but I guess then the question becomes, how do you protect against that kind of thing? And how do you ensure that everybody gets the best outcomes possible? And maybe that is part of it is focusing a little bit more on those relationships inside the OR and things like that. What about if the person getting the surgery, the patient meets the surgeon beforehand? Has that been looked at? Is that a common practice or afterwards that the surgeon themselves will come talk to the person in some cases versus just the other doctors and nurses, you know, does that make a difference? Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I know that um, like, again, because we're in a community hospital and it's not a, a very large one compared to academic centers, most of the surgeons do, I mean, as a, as a routine, they see their patients before time and, uh, you know, ahead of time and afterwards, but sometimes our wait lists are so long that they haven't seen that patient in months or even over a year in some cases. And I wonder how that affects their patient-physician um, relationship. Yeah, I mean, I had, you know, a thyroid surgery three years ago, and I knew my surgeon, and I talked to her, and she came to see me right before I went under. And then I didn't see her right afterwards, but I saw her shortly afterwards. And it was just a big comfort to do that. I felt like, okay, I know who's working on me, and I felt better. So I just wonder if that's, again, a common practice, but it sounds like it may not be. Well, it's good to hear your own personal uh, experiences being positive like that. And, you know, you definitely wonder when people are so busy, that kind of small human gesture 
that can go so far kind of gets lost, you know, in the busyness of a day and trying to get, you know, do as much as you can in that day. So I'd like to think that part of the podcast too is a way of reflecting on what we do now, even though it's a study of history. And I think it reminds us all the shoulders that we stand on, as, as they say, to be able to practice the way we do. I mean, you know, and it's only been really 150 years since we've been able to do modern surgery. And it's been incredible how much it's changed. But I think it, it is, makes you appreciate it more when you understand where, you know, where it's come from, what the history of it all is. So what are some things that happen in the operating room now that didn't happen even 10, 20 years ago, and then maybe 50 years ago? I mean, one of the big things is laparoscopic surgery. And I did a three-part episode on that one, three, three episode sort of series on that one, on that topic, because that whole concept of the sort of keyhole surgery or, or you know, Band-Aid surgery or whatever sort of nicknames that they've given it for the public to, to kind of visualize and understand, the outcomes are incredibly different. I mean, even surgeons that I work with today who are near retirement didn't even have that as an option when they were doing surgeries 30, 40 years ago. I mean, that, that has been an incredible change. People don't stay in the hospital for a week recovering like they used to. You know, you can have your surgery and be out the next day. You know, the pain control improvements, the scars, the, the outcomes, it's just even in that short window of time, it's made a huge improvement. We also have, uh, I guess, the Da Vinci machine. Yep. that will do surgeries and it's remotely controlled. What are those like? That's interesting too, because we, I did um, in that laparoscopic one, get in a little bit into robotics and there's some fascinating detail in that, in terms of even cooperating with NASA and like, just because the technology that's required is not something you can just create from nothing. You have to borrow something that's already been out there. So there was actually some very good stuff about that. We don't have any here and that's usually reserved at like sort of larger centers. And there's been some question about whether it truly does improve outcomes, a robot versus a human. But I think it's a tough one because you're at early stages, right? So you think if you continue to develop these robots, will the outcomes actually in, in the end be better? There's a great article just recently I read called The Future of Surgery talking about what happens to surgeons when robots are able to have even equal, if not improved outcomes and that's, that's something that's quite fascinating too, right? Well, I've heard that perhaps the best will be a combination of robot and human because a robot may be able to make a straighter cut, you know, an initial incision, but the, you know, gauging the elasticity of the skin and the pressure and the speed and all that is better for a human. So if you have a combination surgery where maybe the robot actually replaces the assistance and holds open, you know, a part of the body or you know, clamp something or, you know, oh, yeah. again, assist with tools, but the human does the surgery or some, some form of that where it's cooperative surgery may be the best. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Yeah. And in fact, there was um, uh, the, one of the first robots to come out was actually uh, was essentially an assistant that held the camera. And then you could use voice commands to tell the camera where to look. But then what does the surgeon bring that the surgeon or that the robot doesn't have, I guess you'd think about like intuition, experience, those sort of things that are difficult to measure, but you would assume are important in terms of the outcomes. There's a really actually interesting experiment that they did with a robot where they had the surgeon in one location and the patient and the robot all set up in another and I forget the distance, but it was multiple well, miles, I guess I should say. And so you can imagine the, you know, the technology to be able to operate from another location. 
you know, if you don't even need to physically be in the room, uh, it's such a, a game changing concept that it's sort of, I think it's difficult for people to wrap their heads around. Well, if it's an internet connection, you hope it doesn't go out or lag well, think, or go, eh, 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 you know. Well, and there's issues with lag time and things like that, because even though it's a history of surgery podcast, I did an episode on uh, surgery in space, which I thought was, it was a really fun one to do. Because the question is, what do you do? If we do wind up going to, say, Mars, you know, and it's a nine-month round trip and something happens, what do you do? How do you manage a surgical crisis in that stage? And, and they've actually looked at things like, well, what did they do in the, these Antarctica missions when people were, you know, they couldn't be brought out for months and months at a time? And that's actually, there's been a couple of events that have happened in, in the Antarctica where they've had uh, medical or surgical issues that had to be dealt with. There's one, one was a Russian... He was a surgeon himself, but he was on the on the team that went to the Antarctica, and he actually wound up removing his own appendix. Yeah, he had to train the crew how to assist him, and he set up mirrors and hold them for him, and he actually removed his own appendix. It's an incredible story. Yeah, that is amazing. Do you think that there's going to be any surgeries that are amenable to being done in low gravity or zero gravity environments, like on the, the space station? It would probably be something pretty crazy to do, but... You think that's possible or it would be advantageous? I mean, I think it will be possible. And I was quite surprised at how far people have thought about this and even done some experiments on the International Space Station, just in terms of how you would use the instruments, like how would gravity affect things like blood flow, anesthesia, all these kind of, you know, there's a lot of, the, the deeper you dig into it, the more you, you realize how many issues there are to overcome. But it certainly seems like it would be something that would be possible. One interesting idea too was, if you don't necessarily, you know, as you have probably heard, the cost of sending anything into space based on its weight is, is huge, right? I almost use the word astronomical, but it's so expensive, you wouldn't want to bring up a full set of surgical equipment, for example, right? So they talk about, can you 3D print instruments as needed? And I thought that was sort of a fairly uh, ingenious solution to that problem. Well, I know there's, there's um, 3D printing of you know, various items to go into the body. Um, and I'm sure those would be a lot better and a lot more customized. I've, I've spoken to people that are doing like, uh, you know, better 3D imaging of, you know, people's tumors. So the surgeon can see before they go in what's yep. going on and where things are or 3D printed livers, or it's not the liver itself printed, but again, the, the shape of the liver and the shape of the vessels and the tumor and where they are. So surgeons can look at that and kind of rotate it in their hands. And when they go in, they're not surprised. Yeah. And then even the idea of 3D printing a customized um, you know, biomaterials that are going to stay in the body, like uh, valves and um, you know, sections of aorta for people with an, you know, with an aneurysm or even you know, sections of bone, if you're going to cut out a tumor, say, that's involved in bone. And then can you 3D print sort of a matrix that the body would then rebuild into bone? I like that kind of stuff in the future because you can see where it's come from in the past, right? Um, not necessarily that 3D printing stuff, but just the idea of like, oh, we're going to insert something into the body. How does, how's that going to work? Right. And then how do we, how do we even begin to do that? Like uh, DeBakey is a fairly well-known surgeon actually from Texas. And he made the first uh, graft for an aorta out of a material that he bought at a department store uh, called Dacron. And it was essentially it was sort of a th synthetic material used for making clothing. He bought a section of it, took it home, used his wife's sewing machine, made one, and put it in the human body. Now imagine doing that now. Where we've come from, 
that's what it, where it started. Now we've evolved to the point where we're 3D printing uh, customized, you know, as I said, biomaterials for the, for the human body. It's fascinating. Well, I spoke to one person that was uh, looking at implants that were removed later on and what the body had done to them, how it covered them, et cetera. Do you contemplate that all, any of that in regards to surgery? Um, you know, what's taken out of the body is that at least put aside for study besides just pathology, um, implants when they're removed. You know, are you or have you talked to anyone that's looking at what are they covered with? What do they look like? How are they worn? I mean, I know that is a big area of study. Actually, even one of the things, for example, it's a simple idea, but, you know, having a, a catheter in your bladder, some people have to have them in there long term. They actually develop what's called a biofilm, which is a bunch of, um, basically, it's, it's a material that bacteria produce, and then it forms a, a film over the catheter, which is impermeable to antibiotics, right? So if basically, if those bacteria cause an infection, you can't get rid of them because of that. So that is definitely one of those things that's come up that was from unanticipated, right? But, you know, as, as we have more and more of these things in the human body, we're sort of learning about how, how they react and how to manage the issues that come about. What were some of the milestones in history over time that really improved the experience, such as, you know, pain meds, uh, when there were ether, I guess it started with, but some of the timeline of these things. Well, I mean, I, I've gone all the way back, you know, I've looked at some of the stuff from, you know, ancient uh, Greece and Rome and even, you know, places in India and China and Japan and, and, and follow them through that. What really stands out to me, and I thought this is, is particularly interesting, is that there's such a power of dogma in medicine, or there used to be. This idea that you don't question the ancients, these are the rules. You've probably heard of humors. Have you ever heard of that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, balancing your humors here. Exactly. So the, that concept goes back to Hippocrates and, and Galen and those guys in ancient uh, Greece and Rome. And it went unquestioned for 1500 years because it was not permitted to question it. Right. So that concept of knowledge being unassailable held us back for one and a half millennia. But once the scientific method sort of re came back in the time of, you know, the Renaissance and the industrial revolution into those, that period of time, it started to go into medicine as well. And then you've got things like, you know, where people actually are doing experiments and publishing their data and questioning each other, et cetera. So I was just actually doing some research on one was William Harvey, who's an English physician in the 16, yeah, late, sort of mid to late 1600s, realized that the blood, our blood circulates in our body. And it's hard to understand, believe that, but before that, nobody knew that. Everybody thought that the blood was, was generated and consumed in your tissues and it didn't circulate through the body, which sounds, it sounds ridiculous to us now, but he did the experiments. Well, actually, actually it, it is generated and consumed partially, but it still circulates the majority of it. So part of the idea was right. They're, you know, they're working on the information they had available at the time, but they would literally think you would eat food. That food would turn into blood in your liver, which again, isn't completely wrong, but then it would, blood would go into your tissues wherever it was needed and become those tissues. They wouldn't, wouldn't come back to your heart. So just the idea of a circuit was something that took a long, long time for us to realize. But that, so that was one major breakthrough. Another was, as you mentioned, ether, that was 1846. So really not that long ago. Uh, hand washing with a guy named Samwise. So his thing, he was in, in Vienna and realized that women were getting these fevers after they would deliver their babies and frequently die. 
And it happened in the teaching hospital, but not in the community hospital. So he investigated, realized that the medical students would do autopsies in the morning, often on these women who had died of fevers, and then come up and deliver babies without washing their hands. So they were transferring that. Well, yeah, but this is prior to the concept of germ theory, right? So nobody understood why, but he said, well, let's try washing hands, kept meticulous records and demonstrated a dramatic, dramatic reduction in deaths and was essentially ostracized from medicine for it because the idea that he would suggest that doctors are dirty somehow or could pass disease to their patients was such it was so verboten that, that he wound up actually dying in a mental hospital in his 40s. Yeah, I think they said a gentleman's hands are clean. Exactly. what they would say about the doctors. They, you know, they're not, not clean. Yeah, yeah. so, so th- those kind of events are, are, are interesting to study and, and sort of see how it's, these new concepts are sometimes resisted uh, initially until they're later on proven to be absolutely true. Well, what's some of the dogma nowadays that you think needs to be at least investigated to see if it's really the best way forward? Well, that's a good question. Well, you know, there's been a a big movement called Choosing Wisely. And the idea is we're supposed to be, we should be using the most recent data to stop doing things that are either harmful or have no benefit. It used to be that everybody before surgery, for example, would get an ECG. And it's been shown that that provides nothing. If a person is healthy, and has no history of heart disease, that contributes no useful information. So it's, but yet people do it, right? Because that's how they were taught, right? Or ordering blood work every single day on a patient. I remember as a medical student, I would have to try to memorize the values because I knew the surgeon would ask me every single day, what's this person's hemoglobin, et cetera. But you don't need to do that because it doesn't provide any new information, but that's just the habit that you're into. And I think unless you ask yourself and so have that self-awareness to say, well, yes, I do this. This is my routine, but is it purposeful? Does it have, does it, is it improving anything or not? So there, it's still out there. I think there's still a lot of that. Well, this is the way I was taught, right? And not questioning it. Yeah. And, and there seems to be a, a big diversity of skill in surgeons, you know, like I, you know, get a bit personal, but I had a lateral neck dissection and, um, mm-hmm. you know, my endocrinologist is like, wow, the surgeon did a really good job. You get a nice straight line and, I said, what do you mean? She said, oh, some, some people had a zigzag and like really a big mess. So I was like, well, thank God I got a good one. Do you have any insight for the public when they're going to be choosing a surgeon, if they can choose, you know, at least maybe this only happens in America. What do you look for to know that the person is uh, good, bad, or ugly? Well, you know, as you were saying that, it, it made me think, yeah, that is another one of those topics that is a bit uncomfortable for people to discuss because you're right, there is going to be variation in skill level. How do you measure that? How do you inform the public of that? And then how do you improve those that are kind of behind the mean, right? Because I think right now we focus on sort of basic competencies, right? Meaning everybody, when they leave a training program, should be able to do X, Y, Z, right? But not everybody's going to do those as well as, you know, some, maybe another person. And in medicine, you know, we've, there's been a long history of protecting those that are not maybe as good as, as they should be. And I think that is a real problem. There are certainly, I mean, there's always the extreme stories that you hear about, but everybody kind of in medicine sort of knows who's, who's the best and, or who's really good and who isn't so great. 
the way to identify that as a, from a patient standpoint, I think the only real way you could do that now is to talk to other people who have been to that surgeon. Now, the other problem with that is if they have a great bedside manner, but aren't the best technically, you're not really going to be able to identify that unless you hear about bad outcomes. So it's a tricky issue, but I think it's an important one. Yeah, I, I believe his name is Martin McCarry. He did a, you know, several books on this, and he said one way is to ask the other people in the hospital, would you let so-and-so do this surgery on you? Yeah, and, and, and you, know, you, you know, we both laugh, but it's true. And, and I, I know that if someone asked me, oh, I'm going in to do this or, you know, I have this, who should I go see? I would probably give them a certain name or, or maybe not, a, you know, another name, or at least in the bigger centers. I mean, I think everybody that uh, I've, I'm lucky that everybody here is fantastic, but you know, you always know about somebody who's not, not great. And then there's a bit of, but there's an uncomfortable feeling to that because they're your colleagues, right? You know, you don't want anything negative to happen to them as well. So it, it's an issue. How do you manage that? How do you deal with the, you know, there's all sorts of articles about dealing with the difficult physician as well too, right? I uh, guess one proxy could be, you know, if you're going to have your appendix taken out, you want to make sure the surgeon that works on you has done this surgery at least probably a hundred times. And at least some of the hundred have been in the past six months or year, you know, ideally. And then at least you get someone that does it a lot. Yeah. I think that's a little bit further ahead in the U S than it is in Canada, just because you can sort of more shop around. Whereas here, you know, you just go to your family doctor and then they, they refer you to whoever they refer you to. And that's who you go see. Right. Um, but it's an idea. Yeah. The idea is almost a scorecard or or stats about your surgeon it's i wonder how much resistance that would would receive uh, if they tried to implement that here well he talks about dogma it might be and i think that's one of the things that you can one of the benefits of studying history of course is to you know also to see old problems and, and see if they're you know still applicable today like uh, you know I, I was thinking about that problem of dogma and how, you know, how much it's improved, but you need some great points in that. Yeah, there's, it, there's certainly still some, some of those ideas today. And how do you, how do you continue to improve? Well, what do you see on the horizon in, in surgery that's coming in the next few years that you think is going to make uh, improvements? I mean, the technology sort of always moves along. There isn't any specific new technology I'm thinking of. I think the training is in how we train and evaluate physicians and surgeons is, is evolving. And I think that's going to make a larger difference. They are now, as you said, sort of that scorekeeping that you're talking about or numbers, that has become a bigger focus in medical education, this idea of competency. So you don't just, you know, do your four years of med school and your five years of specialty training and then get spat out, regardless of whether you're capable or not. This is more of, well, you need to do this many procedures, you know, see this many cases of you know, whatever, until you've accomplished that and you've been evaluated and said, yes, you are capable of that now. And once you checked off all those boxes, then you're ready to be sort of put out there and, and operate. Because once you're in practice, really, there isn't a whole lot of scrutiny the way there is in training. So I think if you improve that concept before people are out there, then you're going to see an improvement in outcomes. If for liability purposes, um do you think there'll be, I don't know if this happens, but do you think there'll be a time where all surgeries are kept on video and encrypted in case there's a problem, you know, later on they could be viewed? Well, you've come across another thing that's actually already out there. So, or just starting to be uh, at St. Michael's Hospital, I know in Toronto, 
they have what's called a black box, similar to an airline, right? Where it records everything that happens during the surgery. And if there's an issue, then you can go back and look at that recording and it's going to record everything, like all of the vital stats, et cetera. So if there's an event that occurs, it can go back and look at, you know, because you're monitoring all of the vital signs, et cetera, you can go back and look at that, look at medications, what was happening in the surgery at that moment. So that might actually become a much bigger way of improving surgery too, in terms of feedback, right? Because if you write down to that kind of granular layer where you can look at the data and say, okay, this is the exact moment when something went wrong. And here's what we've witnessed on this black box and we can maybe make improvements. Again, going back to dogma, some physicians or surgeons aren't going to want to be recorded, right? How does that affect, you know, circling back to talking about what it's like to be in the room? Do people feel comfortable joking and talking and, and being, you know, having that camaraderie if you're being recorded? Right, that's true. Yeah. Do you think it might be something that takes off? Well, there could be layers of it. For training purposes, you could have uh, the, the video with no audio. For legal purposes, you might have to have everything where certain things would be kept hidden. You know, you could put a blue dot over people's faces. Certain voices, again, could be, you know, taken out or certain parts redacted. And the video could be used for many, many different purposes. Yes. Yeah, I remember interviewing a potential medical student who was working on this exact project, actually. Um, and the possibilities are pretty exciting. So but it's just, again, medicine is a little bit slow to adapt or to take up new uh, changes. So even talking about robots, et cetera, you know, how many places actually have one? Uh, this black box concept, you wonder how many places will be willing to take that up, how much resistance you might see to that. That could be, could be very interesting. Well, if they offer discounts on uh, malpractice insurance and other types of things, that would probably be a big incentive and pressure for hospitals to use it. But again, it could be used for bad things. You know, you'd have to watch out and it had to be a lot of debate around it to make sure it's used in an ethical way and not to, uh, you know, to hurt people. Yeah. Absolutely. Is there a surgical uh, place that you look at as like, I hate to call it the gold standard, but I don't know, like what's the most innovative, amazing hospital or clinic or place that does surgery that you've observed and what's different about them? If so, Well, yeah. So to me, what I, I have heard about, which I think is quite interesting or quite um, innovative too, is I believe it's in the Cleveland clinic where they do this. Um, you know, the, the routine is usually, you have a problem, you make an appointment, you get a biopsy, that biopsy then gets read by a pathologist, and then you come back a week or two later to discuss the results and book a surgery, et cetera. Some places, as I said, I think it's the Cleveland Clinic where they will take a biopsy, you go that day, you take a biopsy that day, they, they do a quick, what's called a frozen section so they can make a diagnosis immediately. And you can even be booked for all your pre testing, et cetera, in, all in one day. So rather than having people wait around and having that delay of weeks at a time between diagnosis and surgery, you could cut that down to days. And there's only a few places that I've heard about that are doing that. But I think that imagine the reduction in wait times and anxiety that patients feel while waiting for those results, et cetera. It's quite a fascinating concept where you can streamline all that care sort of in one visit, potentially. What makes surgery incredibly difficult? You know, what are some of the factors that make it hard? Is it, you know, an eight-hour surgery is just 
makes total sense, much harder than a one-hour surgery? You know, are children harder to operate on? Like, what makes a surgery more difficult? From the technical standpoint, yeah, as you said, obviously there are some that are more physically demanding than others based on sort of the length of time or, or, you know, if you compare something like, you know, an orthopedic surgery that involves a lot of, you know, physical work versus something that's a bit more finicky. And people use microscopes in surgery. I think that's one of the more technically challenging things to do where you're, you're using sutures that are so fine, you can barely see them with the naked eyes and, and to make, you know, to be able to use that to, to suture something together is incredible. I think that that's sort of the near the pinnacle of technical difficulty. But if you ask most surgeons, what's the hardest part of their job? It's not the technical aspect. In fact, most of them, not surprisingly, love being in the operating room and that's the day they look forward to. It's deciding when to operate because that's what takes the longest time to learn and to really get a feel about that, right? Because it's easy to say yes to everybody that wants a surgery. It's much more difficult to know who you should say no to. Any other factors that you're aware of that uh, really would impact, you know, the success of a surgery? Are there certain kinds of surgery just are notoriously difficult for some reason that, you know, I wouldn't know about? Brain surgery is a very challenging one in that you're off by a few millimeters and uh, you can do some fairly significant damage. It doesn't, doesn't have the room for wiggle room in terms of <laughs> making sure that you make the exact right cut. I think that would be certainly one people would think about. I would say this, if you don't mind, in the history too of surgery, a lot of famous surgeons have been quoted as saying things like, we'll never be able to operate on the heart, right? Because nobody could think of a way to operate on a beating heart until somebody came up with the idea of bypass surgery, right? Of being able to bypass the heart in terms of the blood flow. But those, I mean, when you read stories about those guys in, in the 50s and 60s, the real pioneers of cardiac surgery, I mean, it's incredible. I think that's probably in terms of historical time as well, what has been some of the most technically challenging things to do. I, I would have to put it in that category. Yeah, I guess like nowadays, if you would try to operate on a single nephron of a kidney, that probably would be like incredibly difficult. You know, really, really tiny stuff would be hard. And I think that's what we're getting down to. I mean, as we are improve our ability to identify things earlier and smaller and smaller is to be able to minimum damage as well, right? In terms of, and that's sort of, that's the laparoscopic concept, right? Is that you're, you're, making less of an incision, you're doing, you know, you're, you're less modification of the human body, less healing required. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think you're right. I think that's as we get smaller and smaller, it becomes more technically difficult. And that's for sure. You know, you talked earlier, you said people used to have a, an ECG before surgery and that was useless and blood work was taken every day, which was kind of useless. What about antibiotics before surgery? Is that just universal now that people are given that? And is there anything that could be altered in that particular protocol, you think that would work better? I mean, that would be a big research question. Um, but the number of people that get preoperative antibiotics has been reduced, but there are definitely some that are still, it's routine. Things like if you're operating inside the joints, for example. I do wonder, I don't have the data, but you think, is that effective for everybody? Is that what happens if we didn't do that? That's one of those problems where you go back to dogma. You say, well, everybody gets those antibiotics. Is it ethical then to do a study where you randomize that and some people don't? And what if they have a negative outcome, right? So some of that dogma, kind of, it's challenging to overcome. I think you're making the, the general point that antibiotic uh, overuse is a huge issue in medicine and surgery is not exempt from that. But it has been reduced, I think, but probably there's still some areas that could certainly could be investigated. 
Okay. Well, very good. Tyler, so how do we get people uh, over to your podcast? Where can they go? You know, where is it listed and posted? Um, it's on uh, many of the podcast streaming um, sites. So it's Legends of Surgery. I have a Twitter account and a Facebook, so people can contact me. It's uh, at uh, Surgery Legends. Unfortunately, Legends of Surgery was one character too long. Uh, yeah, and Facebook is Legends of Surgery. And yeah, hopefully people can get there and then download and enjoy some shows. There's all sorts of different topics there. So lots to peruse. Fairly good catalog developed now, which is kind of nice. Excellent. Yeah, and the sophistication level of the listener, they can be a layperson and still get a lot out of it, or do they need to be uh, scientifically knowledgeable? I think I try to create them so that there's a bit of both. I, I think sometimes uh, I do try to, like, I, it's hard not, it's hard to avoid some of the technical stuff, but I try to explain it in a way that someone who, you know, with a bit of a science background um, can understand, not necessarily medical. And because there's so much overlap between you know, the world of medicine and the world in general, I try to include a lot of sort of interesting historical tidbits and, and information too that are, isn't necessarily surgical that I think people might find interesting too. Yeah, excellent. Well, Tyler, thanks for coming on. And I encourage listeners that are interested in surgery, you know, definitely to, to check out your podcast, Legends of Surgery. So thanks for being here. Well, thank you for having me. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.